Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, a show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is Cameron. Michael, I'm beginning to think this is a webcomic that's not just about a kid hanging out at home. Yeah, I think we've we've kind of maybe gone a little bit beyond uh, the, the normal remit that one would expect from the title Homestuck. Yep. Yeah. Is anyone uh, confronting Hussey about that in real time? <laughs> uh, weirdly enough, no. Uh, all the forums that I'm reading, no one's like, listen, Andrew, listen, we were promised the title of this comic promises Homestuck. <laughs> Homestuck. <laughs> we're not even with the same guy anymore, Andrew. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's people world now. <laughs> like people two worlds. Right? People more than one world. People galaxy. <laughs> because today, uh, episode four of Homestuck Made This World, we are starting Act Five, uh, which is the beginning of the Troll Act. Uh, we're going to meet all sorts of people. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you uh, reg- regretting the bit yet? Uh, the, the act and episode bit? Um, I mean, a little bit. I regretted it from the beginning. <laughs> Uh, because my initial plan was genuinely to make an extremely stripped down 13 episode podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. In some ways, this is ugh, it fits the subject. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, like it's still stripped down anyway. Right. This is this is the um, act, I think, where maybe we're going to start uh, feeling the burn a little bit because we're reading about the same number of pages every time. But the amount of content in those pages uh, really varies. Yeah, it really feel. I feel like I like read a small novel mm-hmm. uh, for this episode, for this recording in particular. Mm-hmm. So we yes. will we will have some things to say about that. If not, um, this particular partisode, uh, that's what they're called now, by the way, partisodes. Oh, great. Um, yeah, thanks to uh, whoever it was in the Discord who came up with that. I don't remember exactly. Great work, that. anonymous contributor. Yeah, great work, anonymous contributor. Uh, think of that as your reader command. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, we're, we're going to talk a, a, quite a bit about that, I, I suspect. Um, if you have nothing else to say, I can jump right into the summary. Well, I, the only other thing I guess to say about that is that uh, many I am now seeing many people in the various places that people talk about this show saying there's too much to read now. Mm hmm. And, and they're even a little bit behind of where we are. Yes. So uh, that that's interesting. But yeah, go go ahead and uh, Godspeed with that summary there, bud. Yep. <clears throat> so I'm going to be summary uh, summarizing the. First part of Act 5 here up through page uh, 2,194. So it's uh, uh, the first page is 1989, right? Yes. There we go. Mm-hmm. Act 5 begins as Homestuck becomes something called Hivebent, and it's all very confusing, even more so than you might expect. So listen, if you've read the comic before or have been reading along, you may have noticed that my summaries have actually been pretty formally faithful to the events as they are presented in the comic on kind of a beat-by-beat basis, including weird jumbled chronology. But no more. The events in our immediate future require a stronger hand in order to provide a summary that actually outlines information in helpful ways that scaffold discussion. Also, 
I know that all the little kids we're about to meet have odd names on which there might be profound disagreements of pronunciation, and I'm going to tell you up top that it does not matter. We will refer to these characters and it will be clear who we mean regardless of the specific phonemes we admit. And if you have a problem with that, take it up with the bureaucrats on Purpo. A long time ago, in a universe far, far away, there is a planet called Alternia. It is home to the trolls, a race of humanoid but biologically sort of insectile aliens who have a particularly bloodthirsty and imperialist culture. Troll civilization is focused on interpersonal antagonism and is structured by a strict caste system based on the color of one's blood. Adult trolls spend their lives off-world fighting in endless expansionist wars, while young trolls grow up alone on the home planet, raised symbiotically by the fauna of the planet and harassing each other on online when they are not engaged in live-action role-playing games that have genuine life-or-death consequences. We are now going to meet 12 trolls and learn about a very special game that they played together. The first is Carcinogeneticist, who turns out to be a guy named Carcat Vantis. He is an irascible little dude, and he loves rom-coms. Then there is Terminally Capricious, a young man named Gamzi Makara. He is a juggalo, which is also his religion. Being a juggalo is a religion on Alternia. Then there is Gallows Calibrator, or Terezi Pyrope, who wants to be a criminal prosecutor and has a strong sense of justice slash public executions, which are kind of the same thing on Alternia. After that is Twin Armageddons, aka Sullux Captor, a cool hacker dude with a sour attitude and a bifurcation gimmick. Also, there is Adios Toriador, or Tavros Nitram, a soft-hearted guy who uses a wheelchair after he was involved in a LARPing accident. Then there is Apocalypse Arisen, or Aradia Megiddo, a very eerie young woman with purely white eyes and who telekinetically levitates while doing mysterious things. Did I mention most of the trolls have psychic powers? Well, a lot of them do. Then we have Arsenic Catnip, or Nepeta Lejean, a perky cat girl who loves drawing comics, lives in a cave, and hunts and kills wild game with her hands. But these are not all the trolls, just the ones named in today's reading. We also catch brief glimpses of Grim Auxiliatrix, the troll who has been mostly talking to Rose, not to mention Caligula's Aquarium and Cuttlefish Color, the two highest cast trolls who both apparently live under the sea. Rounding out the crew is Centaur's Testicle, a guy who builds robots, is Nepeta's weirdly controlling friend, loves violent anthropomorphic horse pornography, and is fetishistically dedicated to upholding the Alternian caste system. Finally, there is Arachnid's Grip, a mysterious young woman with a robotic arm, an eye patch, and a troubled history. What happens is this. The trolls set out to play a new game that has been compiled by Sullux from code discovered by Aradia in an ancient set of familiar but different looking frog ruins. Incidentally, Sullux also managed to dig up some strange ancient code that will only execute on the death of a universe and import a set of rapidly oscillating billiard balls, which doesn't seem to make much sense. But the narrative helpfully explains that the virus would in fact summon a time-traveling demon who, upon entering the dead universe, goes back in time and assembles a series of paradox loops that ensure his future arrival. In other words, the demon is already here. Meanwhile, the Trolls game, to absolutely no one's surprise, turns out to be Spurb, or as they call it, Scrub. Initially, the Trolls plan to play the game competitively, with a red team and a blue team, and a lot of words are dedicated to them arguing over who plays on what team, who gets to be the leader, and why. The friend group is riven not only by the prejudices of Alternian society, but petty egos and bad personalities. 
not to mention a series of long-standing grudges stemming from that life-or-death LARPing tradition I mentioned earlier. What happened was this. Arachnid's grip cornered Tavros during a play session and using her powers of mental domination, remember how I said that trolls have psychic powers, forced him to jump off a cliff. Aradia and Terezi were also a part of this game, but for some reason did not respond when Tavros called for help. It is implied that further causes or consequences of this event resulted in AG's robotic arm and eye patch, Terezi's blindness, and Aradia's being a ghost. Oh wait, did I mention that Aradia was dead the whole time? Well, she is, and she's also psychically in tune with what she understands as an unalterable path to the Alterian apocalypse, which will be ushered in by the game. In fact, the game lets lets her stop being a ghost because she first throws the stone frog head from the temple into her kernel sprite for some reason. I mean, okay, the voices of the dead and the damned told her to, and we're going to find out why that matters later. But then after entering the medium, she jumps into the kernel sprite, becoming a combination troll ghost frog sprite girl. This surprises us just as much as it surprises a radius server player who witnesses it, Nepeta. Truly, we are all this alien cat girl. Anyway, all that stuff happens and we leave off in the presence of Arachnid's Grip, who is finally on the cusp of procuring a name. So Cameron, before we uh, started recording, you mentioned something about a tonal shift here. What were you talking about? Well, there's a big tonal shift in the uh, summary, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, this is like a, uh, this is a young adult novel now. Yeah. Uh, what what is what is what about this? Uh, I I I agree. What about this mm-hmm. for you is is the young adultness of it? Well, so we talked about this the other day. You and you and I did. Um, uh, maybe maybe almost a week ago, in fact, probably something like that. Uh, and I said, oh wow, this is really different. You know, the 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 narratorial voice of Homestuck once we enter into Act Five really kind of transforms. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to kind of get get hands on that kind of understand it and and i think the difference here is that the homestuck has always been about children like mm-hmm. tweens um but it has felt like a story told by an adult the the framework has felt like here's an adult explaining what these goddamn children are getting up to mhm this is like a pseudo mythical the narratorial voice in act five is like a pseudo mythical uh you know i know we've mentioned it a few times but like the never-ending story earth sea mm-hmm. chronicles of predane mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. that you know w- once hussy you know this is just pure speculation but it seems like once hussy um kind of reconciled with the meta move of introducing themselves as a character Mm -hmm. and then saying that the narratorial voice is a character that freed them up to do more things with narratorial voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean that literally did happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, this is written like a young adult story would be. Um, It, it feels like it is refocusing um, into some other kind of, uh, of of work yeah it really is uh and i think you know calling it something like a fantasy novel like Earthsea or never-ending story i think is a, a really good uh pull because really what this act is doing 
is a lot of world building, right? It starts out like, here is a planet called Alternia. It's not just uh, in the way that Homestuck begins with John, um, we can make uh, a lot of assumptions about sort of the, you know, quote unquote, normalcy of the world that he inhabits uh, in a way that obviously we're not going to do when we switch to uh, this planet in the far reaches of space or whatever uh, in another universe really is what we're being told. And so everything is kind of being related in uh, that, like the the narratorial voice knows that it's doing world building. Yes. Right. Um, whereas before uh, in like John's kind of initial pages, uh, even though you you called out like, for instance, the Colonel Sassaker volume being important in some way, uh, mm -hmm. it was never clear uh, it could hide the plot of stuff right or it could hide its world buildingness behind kind of things that are innocuous whereas here there is nothing that is quite that innocuous about any of the stuff that's going on in with these trolls no because everything is um tuned you know maybe this is another way way of uh, saying this by the time we are entering into Act 5, this is a story that is doing something outside of whatever, um, you know, it has it has no um, respect for, like, because it doesn't have fan commands, right? But mm -hmm. it's it's a train that it's on its own tracks, mm -hmm. and it's just going to be doing that thing. And so, what, you know, I would say that one way of accounting for a tone shift is that this is a much more writerly text. Mm -hmm. um, it, is, it is something that is... Having ideas and then planting the seeds for them and then paying them off, not just in kind of revelatory moments later, which is what Homestuck has kind of done so far, right? Hey, here's an object. Hey, it shows up again later. Look at that. Wowee. But it is uh, little moments of characterization are getting paid off very quickly. There's a kind of um, poetic rhythm to it. Mm -hmm. It just feels very different. It, it feels more like a piece of writing than a piece of webcomic or, you know, kind of responsive webcomic to it. Um, that stuck around even after the reader commands were gone. Mm -hmm. But now they are, now now that is flushed out entirely. Mm -hmm. The whatever kind of internet writing kind of feel to it that it had before where it was organically responsive um, to commands or like the medium that it's a part of it, it's just wholly shifted now into mm -hmm. a comic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know like a like a fully author authorially owned comic yes yes that is 100 percent uh the, the sort of feeling of it uh and i mean the the other thing to to be obvious right uh the other thing that really adds to the whole ya feel of it is that not only is this uh homestuck has always been a story about some kids um but these characters are all a bunch of weirdos, uh, but it is clear from the jump that so much more of this story is going to be about uh, their interpersonal dynamics and kind of the strife that results as a consequence of that uh, in a way where, uh, you know, reading early Homestuck. You aren't like, oh, man, I bet I bet Rose and uh, John are going to get into a huge fight. Uh, like you're not really seeing quite the uh, the um, I guess prickly like 
you know, Rose can be prickly, but there's never a sense that like the prickliness of the characters is putting them on collision courses for one another. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas here, absolutely. Right. Like we, we get introduced to Carcat uh, and all Carcat can do is complain about how much he hates every single person he knows, like how much they annoy him. <laughs> Well, because I, I, it's something I, something very interesting about Homestuck, right, is that all of the words that I would normally use to describe the differences here, they don't work. So mm-hmm. I, you know, as you were saying that, I was going to say, yeah, the differences in how expository they are. But the beginning of Act 5, extremely expository. In fact, mostly exposition, <laughs> I would say, right? But but the difference in, in the way that that exposition happens is that um, everything in the first two and a half, three acts of Homestuck that was focused on the original gang of, of children, uh, all of the uh, all of that works out with characterization secondary to the forward momentum of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's still uh, that is expository, but expository in a way that is like, hey, I'm trying to explain to you what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, this is entirely expository, but the uh, you know the beginning of Act Five is, but it is inverted from that because actually the game is just an excuse to watch these children interact with one another. Mm-hmm. The actual content here is not scrub and like the way that all this stuff works. In fact, most of the operations of that are jumped over, skipped. You know, uh, 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 the narrator is actively making fun of, like, mm-hmm. why you would care about any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And what is surfaced at the very top is exactly what you're saying, right? Like, everyone's uh, feelings and opinions and all the social relations that are a part of this, um, you know, network of of trolls. And so it's really interesting that, it, that both are expository, right, in the sense that they are trying to give us um, the lay of the land or a... Um, uh, shape and scope of the thing that we're looking in on here mm-hmm. but it was about the game for the beginning of homestuck and here it is just about creating like you were saying a bunch of things that are on a collision course for one another mm-hmm. um and look it's it's easy to see it's so apparent to see this is laser targeted at fandom yes um it it is this is just a uh you know unbelievable as i was reading this i was like oh i get it like i get why people are so because i'll be honest not really i could understand why people are engaged in homestuck but i but nothing about like the uh um i i you know outspoken aggressive defensive you know all the ways that people really seem to find camps within the fandom of homestuck and really strongly identify with them um That didn't really make a lot of sense to me until we got to the trolls, and it makes sense to me (laughs) now, too, why I had never seen any cosplay of any other people, and I was only familiar with the trolls to the extent that I thought maybe Homestuck was just the trolls (laughs) (laughs) before we began, Um, because these these characters are, um, you know... Like I said, laser targeted at making you identify and then pick your favorite one. Yep. Like like straight up. All right, here's a here's an example. This is on 2068, by the way, just going back a little bit, right? Uh, we return to the land of Pulse and Haze so that we can rewind a bit. Before all that paint got slopped on your hive and before that mysterious hole was made. Man, how'd that hole get made? It was when Carcats TA ran TA's cursed ATH program and his computer blew up. That's what happened. We'll see this happen later. It will be startling and unexpected, right? Like there's there's something about this like knowing uncle 
Uh-huh. <laughs> right? There's there's something going on in the narratorial voice here that's very different than before. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's a lot of, like, winking, you know, the grandfather from The Princess Bride mm-hmm. going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. Some, some, something's up. It is, uh, yeah, the, the grandfather from The Princess Bride, I think, is a interesting comparison. Uh, but it, it's exactly what you're talking about, right? There is uh, a flippancy with which uh, a lot of the material that in the first four acts was treated as kind of central. Uh, there's a flippancy that is now being marshaled against that uh, because there's the sense of, and if you're not someone who's reading along, you may wonder, you know, what was going on with my summary? Why was I making all of these caveats? Uh well, at least partly, uh, it is because, as uh, in that bit that Cameron just read, this chunk of Act 5 is constantly skipping forward and backward in time uh, because it takes for granted that you know how the game of Spurb works, right? Mm-hmm. One character starts it. Um, this initiates the meteors that are going to fall, and it's going to get consistently worse as things go on, and the characters are going to have to be constantly like working to you know get other people into the game. Uh, and we know that once you get into a game, there's a land, and you've got to do some of this kind of crap, you got to find these uh, gates and so on and so forth. Like enough of the actual game mechanics have kind of been established early on that here uh, they are used as kind of anchoring points for the reader. So we can jump forward to when uh, Karkat is in the game, he's in his land, uh, but then notice that, hey, stuff has changed uh, because there there has been stuff between him uh, sort of being introduced and him entering the game that we haven't seen, and we are going to see it, right? It's it's like locked into place. It'll be fine. Don't worry. We'll get there. Uh, we don't have to make a big deal out of this. Uh, so I know in in actual reading, right, in sort of the the something awful thread, uh, there's a lot of work trying to puzzle this out, right? People like referencing what we know about the game versus what is actually happening and then trying to sort of situate everything on a timeline, even though it's all quite, quite jumbled. Um, the other thing that is happening in the thread um, or maybe not quite happening, this is a. a it's a very strange thing. And I, I said this to you, Cameron. Um, it's like a switch gets flipped, right? I, I, I was doing my reading for this and I even said on uh, Twitter, right? I, I came forth and to, to say something publicly before we'd even recorded this, which is like, had I not been there, had I not already been reading this thread, had I not kind of lived through uh, the thing that is happening, I would sort of doubt that it even happened in the way that it did because it is so noticeable. So nobody in the thread is like, hey, this is a young adult novel now, at least not yet. But at the beginning, uh, everyone is just like super excited. They're like, oh, it's this character. This is great. Uh, here, <laughs> When Gamzee gets introduced, everyone's like, holy shit, he's a juggalo. <laughs> Like, well, I mean, I'll be honest, when I was reading it, I also thought, holy shit, he's a juggalo. <laughs> Part of a juggalo cult. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, like a murderous juggalo cult, but also he's like a total failure at it because he's a stoner. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, so and this is this is the other thing that starts happening here is like uh, and obviously and Hussey says this like it's obvious right reading the text and Hussey says this in in the book commentary uh, the trolls are kind of uh, broad parodies of like 
you know, people who would be internet trolls, like if mm-hmm. not specific types of internet trolls in the case of someone like Karkat, right? This guy who's just like sort of consistently angry about everything and very uh, confrontational and insulting. Um, uh, then at least there's like also this sort of like burnout uh, type character in Gamzy or someone who's sort of maybe like, I don't know, uh, uh, you would socially gross, right? Circa 2010, um, because this is and this is the other thing that feels so incredibly quaint about this. Uh, it's right after uh, the um, ICP video for uh, miracles, right? The mm. magnets, how do they work? That became like yeah. a viral thing. Yep. So this gets just like this is a thing that happened maybe a, a couple weeks before Act Six starts. And it gets incorporated in as like, you know, like everyone was talking about Juggalos a couple weeks ago. Now, here's a Juggalo troll, right? Really capitalizing on uh, things that are trending and kind of Internet culture in a way that makes me feel like, you know, it's like the episode of The Office where everyone starts planking. Mm-hmm. Where yeah, or parkour, the parkour yeah, episode. Yeah, right. There was this time mm-hmm. in kind of the early two thousands before every like, before uh sort of the internet and kind of mainstream media were so fully interpenetrated that we could have you know like a sitting president trying to uh, incite a coup over Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. uh, before that happened, uh, there was this like a uh, real sense in the air of like oh this thing that was on TV uh, recognized this thing that people on the internet were talking about right there's like a U- viral YouTube video that even people who don't normally go on the internet are watching and now it's being referenced in the office isn't that cute uh, the ICP thing being folded in here feels a lot like that as well of course we also got you know the double rainbow thing going on uh, wait who really where is that Did I oh. just miss that you you didn't uh when when Gamzee is kind of like looking up at his miracle modus which by the way there there are more uh, fetch modus jokes uh in this act but they're all relatively brief oh i see right and it's just like flashing rainbow colors and he's just like staring at it look i'm gonna be honest with you whenever a fetch modus shows up in this comic at this point i'm not paying (laughs) fine-grained attention to detail it's it's fine it's all right it doesn't matter uh, but yeah that's true it is it's blinking yeah blinking and whatnot so uh husk top gotta get his husk top out of there <laughs> games he's wild looking what he, a wild looking guy he is uh and what <laughs> what people don't like about so Here's how this is working, right? A character who is like a a kind of gross type of person, right, is introduced and uh, they we get to spend a little bit of time with them. And then the readership is like, oh, holy crap, I love Gamzee. Right. Mm-hmm. It starts out like, I can't believe that this character is a juggalo. How how outrageous is this? How awful is he going to be? Uh, you know, three pages later. Wow. Gamzee is easily the best troll. <laughs> Right. It's it's this kind of movement. And this is how it works with just about every single character that gets introduced here. Uh, they're introduced. People sort of have this like gross reaction to kind of how they uh, uh, present it first. And then they're like, oh, here's what I really like about this character. So immediately. Right. I, this is what I was talking about in, in previous partisodes about how uh, Homestuck is kind of a, an object that recomposes or reengineers its reader base. Um early on in the something awful thread this is the something awful thread early on it was all about game mechanics it was all about sort of the logic and the rules of this world and by this point like people are meeting characters and then immediately doing character-based speculation we meet Terezi and we learn her whole deal about like justice 
And the immediate question, because we know that Terezi has already kind of uh, uh, inadvertently caused John's death back in sort of the quote unquote main story. uh, People people start like uh, working this out. They're like, oh, okay. so when Terezi killed John, was that because she was doing it out of her sense of justice? Uh, Does that mean she thought she was doing a good thing? However, this culture that she exists in seems to have a really bad idea of justice. To what extent can we hold her responsible for what she did if that's what she was thinking? Uh, Just all of this character-based speculation, um, people thinking about, oh, I can't wait until Gamzee and uh, Dave talk, right? Like, I can't wait until these characters start meeting mm-hmm. the characters that we already mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Uh, I, laser targeted toward fandom. I mean, it's, it is, uh, the, all of these characters, it, there's, there's something brilliant truly brilliant about this and and the brilliance of it is in the alternia concept and the troll idea mm-hmm. and that and and what i mean by that is that alternia is like upside down world everything that's good in our world is bad in alternia everything that's bad in our world is good in alternia mm-hmm. I mean, you know that's not 100 percent the case but it's basically it right like everything that is about culture uh you know the relationship between well uh, Things that are not upside down are just hyper extended. So, for example, right, like their entire social apparatus is based basically on hatred mm-hmm. <laughs> and and different forms of annoyance and um, uh, aggression. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of them are a little bit closer and nicer to one another, but that is not the norm, right? Um, and so, because of that, you can immediately see how they would all interact both with one another and with the other existing characters, because you know what bad stuff they do, not just in their like troll chat stuff that we've already seen, but in their actual characterization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know how Carcat interacts with John, but we also know how Carcat interacts with everyone now. Mm-hmm. And so you can really start spinning up from a fairly limited amount of information, a lot of speculation. Mm-hmm. You, you get, you get a lot of kind of meat to deal with. The other thing here, too, is that they, uh, the other way that it's kind of geared toward fandom is that, weirdly enough, uh, these characters are more alienated. This is, this is partially the young adult novel thing for me. Mm-hmm. These characters are so much more alienated from the world than the other kids are. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you, you find out that, like, John, uh, he has problems with his dad. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, his dad was like a caring person mm-hmm. who just like wanted he wanted John to know that he cared about the things that John cared about, like Harlequins, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That it's a misunderstanding, and the the way that story pays off is basically like, hey, your your parents probably care about you more than you know. You know, if there's a thing that kind of Act Four uh, pays off in, it's did you know that. Um, the world has kind of been set up in such a way to help you succeed and go along in your journey, mm-hmm. which is very YA-ish, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't have the YA-ish um, uh, interpersonal conflicts, right? That makes things like uh, Twilight or The Hunger Games or uh, uh, Wizard School, any of those things work, mm-hmm. right? Those things work off of interpersonal frictions, um, and then, like, getting rid of parental f- figures for the most part. And if parental figures show up, they are uh, compromised or they themselves have their own social problems. I'm thinking about um, uh, the poor family and the rich evil family. <laughs> I don't know any of the names of people from Harry Potter. <laughs> yes. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, like even parental figures within that mode, within that young adult novel mode, 
um, parental figures themselves are also like just teenagers mm-hmm. <laughs> in the way that they are written. They just happen to have be older at this point. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying all of that to say that it's really interesting to me that the trolls like even get away with uh, like um, parental figures, right? Mm-hmm. What they have is like a hostile creature <laughs> that they have to deal with in the most violent possible way and they have to feed them and take care of them like they are so much more alienated from their conditions of existence in fact that's just what alternian society is is that you are come you emerge into the world and are alienated and all you have are your friends online and the people you hate to deal with Mm -hmm. Um, and that is just like grist for the mill (laughs) you know as far as like creating fan identifications or the fan enjoyment Mm -hmm. um you know that this again going back to something we've talked about a bunch of times this is lost it's exactly how it works too just in a slightly more i would say uh baroque and adult oriented mode um but that like hook the way that it grabs you Let's take all these characters, remove them, alienate them from their conditions, and then selectively fill that information in for you. And then you can figure out how they will interact with each other in the past or in the future based on their pasts. That's exactly how Lost works. And I, I, I continue to say <laughs> Homestuck might just be kind of Lost fan fiction in some ways. You're not wrong, I don't think. Uh, but yeah, I think maybe just to outline it for you, listener, uh, Here, here is how troll society seems to work or like how trolls seem to come up so there is uh a thing called the mother grub that uh exists somewhere on the planet that is like birthing all of the trolls uh but the trolls themselves are sort of like individuals like they're individuated uh people you know, like, you know, human beings. Uh, but the mother grub is a kind of like symbiotic animal sort of thing. We learned this because uh, it is the ant. One of them is the animal caretaker for Grim Auxiliatrix. So when uh, Cameron mentioned these, uh, you know, horrible beasts, uh, the the baby little grub trolls are born from the mother grub. Uh, they grow up. Uh, there's this something called like, you know, the brooding caverns that's uh, referenced. Uh, they are apparently it's, it's all uh, like they're basically left to fend for themselves as little grub infants. If they survive this, they are then picked by uh, various types of literal wild animals that exist on Alternia. And those wild animals like take them out into the world. And then the kids like just with their uh, animal guardian, which is they call their Lucis. Um, the, the term that they use is actually uh, Lucis Natura, uh, which is the Latin term for it, it literally means uh, joke of nature. Uh, but we mostly get it translated as freak of nature. Um, so their Lucis takes them out and they like, as a child, build their house with their Lucis, uh, which is, you know, very strongly flagged as like, hey, isn't it interesting that this culture, uh, raises kids in such a way that they're acclimated to building their own houses? Hmm. Wonder what's up with that. Um, Hmm. yeah. So they do that and then they just live alone for the rest of their lives, uh, like with their, their animal guardian until they grow up and they have to go join the infinite war effort. So uh, what we have here then is uh, what if what if Hogwarts, what if wizard school was Mm -hmm. an entire planet uh, that was nothing but like talking to your friends online, playing video games and like 
high octane middle school hormonal drama. And the this uh, act across the board, we'll talk about it more in the next uh, part episode. But it it's it's hammering the gas on that one, mm-hmm. on the hormonal drama it, in a way that the that the the comic up to this point has not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the uh, how old are the are they thirteen? Yes, all the other kids. Mm-hmm. So they're thirteen year olds, but they are a very particular kind of thirteen year old, right? They're a thirteen year old for which, for the most part, like sex and desire doesn't exist. Um, they like curse, but they're like little internet gremlins. They're not. Uh, they they don't. They are not like real thirteen year olds. Mm-hmm. You know, they are. They're kind of iconographic impressions of them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, cer- certainly, like when I was thirteen, right? Like I I had people who I knew who were addicted to drugs already. I lots of people were having sex, mm-hmm. like that. You know, all of those things that are really happening for thirteen year olds. It's kind of walled off in in Homestuck, right? For uh, I, like I said, iconographic reasons, right? They are sketches, like we've talked about in those first few episodes. Um, what seems to be happening with the trolls is that, uh, it, it, really weirdly, the framework leans into YA, and by leaning into YA, feels very comfortable bringing in content from like, you know, less less Wizard School and more Twilight mm-hmm. uh, or more Hunger Games, right? That they are teenagers with desire and they're going to act on those desires and, and like long lost loves and like carnal interest um, and violence, mm-hmm. you know, that they will they will hurt one another in a way that that all of that is really video gamey in the beginning of Homestuck. It starts to become really kind of, um, I don't know, narratively real here mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, um, Troll or, or troll, uh, <laughs> John fighting all of those like uh, little Harlequin dudes. That it's a, it's a video game, right? But mm-hmm. that's that's not quite how violence works here, and especially given uh, you know being thrown off a cliff by mind control and all that kind of stuff, right? It's just different narrative stakes entirely. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mentioned in the previous part episode, uh, what was it that made Michael a Homestuck fan? What was it that locked me in? Uh, and I said that it was that revelation at the end of Act Four that uh, you know torpedoed what were some of the most popular ships in kind of a, a certain segment of the fan community. Uh, and this is, of course, something that the Something Awful thread thinks is really funny. This is something that historical Michael thinks is really funny. Uh, what the Something Awful thread does not know, what historical Michael does not know, but frankly, by the sort of midpoint of Act 5, I'm starting to understand some of this. Um, mm-hmm. What we don't know is that Act 5 is what, what, what we expect, I guess I should lay this out. We're going to move into Act 5. Something Awful's moving into Act 5 thinking like, okay, like, can't wait to see, like, all of the different ways that uh, Hussey's going to m- continue to make fun of the shippers. Um, uh, That's not what's going to happen here. This is not, you know, sorry to, to like, uh, uh, demystify some of uh, the future partisodes, uh, but Act 5 is, in fact, uh, geared toward building up as much of a fan base as possible. And what is really 
interesting about having experienced like sort of this shift in the narrative and also being able to read it back in the way that I am uh, is how it happens so slowly that uh, we could continue in the something awful thread to kind of keep up this pretense of like, oh, this is the reason all of these characters are so obnoxious and absurd is that Hussey is essentially daring people to uh, write fanfic about them. Right. Like, I mm. dare you to Im- <laughs> I dare you to imagine that uh, this juggalo could have uh, like romantic feelings for this really sad uh, kid who just wants to like think about like Peter Pan and play Pokemon. Right. Um <laughs> Like, I dare you is what we think is happening. Uh, uh, but of course, you got daved. Yes, right. <laughs> they daved you. Well, so these these puppets could could never be. Yes. <laughs> you could never really like these sex puppets. No, exactly. Exactly. So uh, uh, I want to I want to just run through a couple things then in the something mm. awful thread within a week of act five starting. Uh, we have a poster who says something like, oh, my gosh, guys, you know, I wonder because everyone's really hype, right? Everyone's really up on the beginning of act five, uh, the trolls and everything. So within a week, we have a poster oh, who says, can, can I ask you a clarifying question really quickly? Yes. Sorry. Before before you dive into it, what was the gap of time between act four ending and act five starting? Uh, about a, about a week. Okay. So this was not, not a long wait. It was like, Hey, we, we just had a big climactic, huge information thing and we are getting right, right back into it. Yeah. I can, I can double check, uh, to give you, um, some hard dates here. I'm going to just pull open the app, but, um, yeah. So act, act five begins on six twelve. Um, and Andrew Hussey, uh, posted the act like the whole recap, the last recap that I mentioned, that was posted on six eleven. Okay, gotcha. So between wow. the end of Act Four, that descend, that animation, we got all of those little like sort of disconnected updates, kind of showing like John wandering around the battlefield and stuff. We get mm-hmm. these really short, brief updates, and then six twelve, we begin uh, Act Five with Alternia. Um, so within a week of this starting, we have someone in the Something Awful thread saying i don't i don't know guys like sometimes don't you wonder because because uh you know the people are still posting cool fan art like i mentioned last time don't you think last sometimes like i don't know maybe what if what if like we become like the official forums what if we become like those people right all of like which has sort of people like us the something awful posters but also has like a higher proportion of shippers and people who are posting in the raw art thread and people who are just making fan art and writing fan mm-hmm. fiction and things like that so this person asks just big fans yes right mm-hmm. so this person's like what if we become like the official forums uh you know it wouldn't that be creepy within two days of saying that this poster reveals that they have a folder of Homestuck fan art uh, that is over 500 megabytes in size. Oh, buddy. Right? Here is here is uh, just another... This is like such an indicative uh, uh, example of, of some of like how this is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to generally like not name specific posters unless I think that they're like getting something right because uh, I don't want to just mm-hmm. like denigrate people. Uh, mm-hmm. If I'm if I'm if I'm narrating something uh, embarrassing, I'm not going to name names. But someone in uh, the thread at one point uh, sort of says, you know, I kind of have a crush on G.A. Grim Auxiliatrix. I kind of have a crush on this fictional character. 
Wait, who was that? Is that Terezi? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, we we don't have her name yet. Oh, got it, got it. She's green, green text. Yes, green text with the capital letters. The one who talks to Rose. Got it, got it, got it. So someone says, yeah. "I kind." Sorry, <laughs> uh, everyone should know by this point that. If you introduce 15 new characters, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for me for a while. <laughs> so this post. Okay, sorry. This poster. This poster says, I have a crush. I kind of have a crush on GA. Someone else replies that it's weird to say this, right? That is the word that they use, that it is weird. A third poster comes in uh, and scolds the previous poster, uh, pointing out, by saying that uh, OP is not, and here I quote again, uh, is not, quote, jacking off, um, quote, he, and that's sick, it's assumed, everyone's assuming everyone's a guy here, because it's 2010 mm-hmm. and we're on something awful. He is, of is just saying that, quote, a character's cute. OP, who, by the way, this is crucial context, has uh, as an avatar the jitter, one of the jittering puppets from Bros like weird puppet site. Mm-hmm, uh, right. <laughs> that that's the avatar. Uh, uh, they reply, quoting the person who defended them, saying, yeah, this basically. Right. I wasn't being creepy. I was saying what this person was saying. So then the first respondent signals their apology to OP uh, with a sweet bro and hella Jeff goddamn emoticon. This is accepted symbolically by OP responding with the same emoticon. This exchange is then quoted by someone, uh, quote unquote, ironically posting fan art of Clover from the felt kissing a surprised looking sawbuck. So containment has been breached. Containment has been breached, right? People are uh, like posting ROM art now openly, but uh, for irony reasons. Mm-hmm. 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 Where'd they get it? <laughs> Where'd it come from? Yeah. Where are you, where are you getting all this ROM art, huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I noticed you got a lot of people kissing people in your art folder. Here. What's <laughs> up with that? Buster, uh, I noticed you got a bunch of fictional characters <laughs> kissing each other. <laughs> so uh, that's a thing that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. Here are some other things that are happening that I think are very important uh, and that are absolutely not going to come through uh, through like an archival reading experience. Uh, you you may have noticed <clears throat> that I explained a lot of stuff in the summary. That is because there's a lot of stuff happening in these pages. There is, in fact, quite a few uh, of these pages. Like, Act 5 is happening very, very quickly. Um, And the update style, or rather the update rhythm, is bonkers. Uh, Hussey is posting something like 5 to 12 pages per day. Um, And they're not all coming at the same time. Hussey will very often update twice in one day, uh, like four pages at maybe like four o'clock in the morning, uh, and then a whole bunch more pages uh, later in the evening. So people are starting to like keep the MSPA website open in a tab uh, and just like hitting F5, right? Refreshing to wait for the newest update. Because even though there's kind of usually like an early morning update and a late update, this doesn't always happen. Um, And it doesn't like they're not always at the same time, right? 
So people in the thread notice this. They're like, holy crap, where are these updates? Like, I want to see what happens next. And this is a thing people are talking about, right? It's sort of like this erratic update style. Um, Another thing that happens is Hussey is, of course, answering questions on Formspring. And someone asks, you know, hey, have you ever read the Something Awful Homestuck thread? And Hussey says, yeah, like, I've, I've read that. It's pretty long. It's not as long as it's going to get, of course. But uh, this gets posted and people in the thread are like, oh, holy crap. Uh, you know, Hussey is uh, reading the thread. And so they start, like, posting to Hussey. Right. Um, Like trying to uh, like guide the story, being like, hey, here's my theory, uh, doing all of this kind of stuff. Um, And for what it's worth, there are a few things that come up that definitely seem to get worked back into the story. But I'll talk about that uh, a little bit in the second uh, part episode that we're going to be recording today. Um, This is all to just say, right. Uh, This is interesting. The readership knowing or like being able to perform for kind of the, you know, Lacanian big other, right? Someone is watching us. We are going to try to sort of like communicate with this author. Um, uh, I want to consider them. I love that you like to call it the Lacanian big other when really it's just the Catholic God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to, I'm going to use the medium of the forum uh in order to hope that my message will reach uh, the divine Cameron, the creator figure. I look, I mean, I'm not Cameron. I, I know I have stretch here. I have said to you before that Lacanian theory is just a uh, uh, like Christian doctrine with God poked out of the center. Like, I think I have said that to you because that is what you need to like. That's how you under that's what you need to know to understand Lacan is that it is just like uh, like the Christian universe. But God is missing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm looking for him. You're telling me there's a, a sinner that constitutes the whole, uh. but but which isn't there? <laughs> it's impossible. Well, speaking of sinners that constitute holes, um, we might also think of uh, maybe something like a panopticon, uh, because uh, the other thing that is happening here with kind of the reengineering of the fandom, right? This slow shift in in like the readers' concerns and the way that uh, really like what readers are doing here are picking up the cues of the story, right? They are responding to the things that the story wants them to respond to. So characters, right? We we sort of minimize uh kind of gameplay stuff. We focus on characters. Of course, readers who are in like who are still reading are going to react to the characters, and if they're into this, then that's what they're going to be sort of speculating about um but i think something that is really uh helpful here uh especially also as we think about like the something awful thread tried to kind of cordon itself away from like the official forums uh is this idea of like what is a fandom broadly but also who are fans specifically what is a fan and what is the fan of homestuck at this point uh mm-hmm. mel stanfill Um, has a book called Exploiting Fandom uh, that came out in 2019. Have you read this or have you heard of it, Cameron? I've heard of it. I'm familiar with uh, Mel Stanfill at the University of Central Florida. Yes. UCF? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, Anastasia Salter is there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pretty interesting department. Mm -hmm. Extremely. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, Stanfill's book, Uh, Exploiting fandom is basically about how it's about something that is happening just after 
that what everything we're doing in this show it is about how the actual like big corporate apparatus uh comes to recognize internet fandom and starts to incorporate that into its uh marketing strategies right more or less uh, i'm i'm very much condensing it uh but stanfield looks at uh uh sports teams um and uh speculative media so uh not shows like lost uh but uh it starts with like C, uh, a cw show whose title i can't remember off the top of my head um but that sort of thing Teen- teenage wolf yes things like that like sci-fi channel stuff mm. um so stanfield uh stargat <laughs> Uh, uh, Stanfield is sort of looking at these things. Um, but really, you know, when we say Homestuck made this world, one of the things we're getting at is that Homestuck, uh, uh, to use a very loaded phrase, pioneered a lot of these strategies, uh, prior to their sort of corporatization. Uh, nevertheless, I think Stanfield's, uh, perspective on this, um, which is explicitly Foucauldian is very useful. Uh, just to, to quote here then, um, Stanfield is talking about the the Foucauldian uh, sort of discourse around the fan. What she is trying to get at is sort of, uh, you know, who is the image of the fan for the corporate uh, overlord or what have you? Uh, and I think that operates slightly differently here in uh, in in the Homestuck realm. Um, but the essential insight that Foucault can bring here uh, is that power not only represses action, but it also produces action, meaning that power is not just a thing uh, that sort of sits up top of culture and says, here are the things you can't do. Um, but rather, uh, precisely in telling you, here are the things that you cannot do, is also kind of like uh, clearing the ground, producing places for uh, individuals to figure out other ways of doing things or other ways of being, right? Um, it, it's kind of like a, a funneling action. So uh, Stanfield says, quote, discourses are ideas with impact because assumptions about what is true or correct structure, thought and action. Uh, Citation to Foucault there. Conceptualizing the fan as a discourse thus reorients the question from how fans are to how cultural common sense imagines them and what that renders unintelligible or illegible. Skipping forward a little bit. That is, discourse around fans reflects and reproduces a norm, a structuring ideal that identifies particular people and modes of behavior as correct, expected, desired. That is normal. So uh, in this sort of tension between the Something Awful thread and uh, the sort of mainline uh, official forums, uh, we see precisely like fans themselves engaging in this behavior, trying to uh, parse out what is or is not normal fan behavior. Or rather, uh, you know, Something Awful is more than willing to, I guess, let the MSPA readers uh, the, the people on the forums, you know, be their own thing, but they're going to be the bad fans, the fans we don't like. And in fact, one of the things that is being complained about um, is that uh, the fans are getting a little too much control over the troll names. So the trolls, Cameron, inclu- the, not just the trolls, but Alternia itself, uh, when we get kind of the repetition of, you know, here's a character and here's their name, enter their name, uh, the suggestion boxes are opening back up. So fans do get to name the trolls. 
When this happens, every time the suggestion box opens, the website crashes. That's what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. But uh, the people in the Something Awful thread are really into so everyone. All of the fans have been like, oh, I think that the troll is going to have this name and this name. Or wouldn't this be a good name for the troll? Uh, and they're all kind of like pulling things out of uh, other languages and mythology and things like that. Um, if you want to, you can look this up on the uh, Homestuck wiki. All of the stuff has been cataloged there. Uh, but the point is, what the Something Awful thread wants is for all of the characters to have kind of like mythological names. So someone like, like Carcat is an example who I think ends up having just kind of like, you know, names that it's a name that's like sort of etymologically related to like cancer as a zodiac sign and, and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, when Gamzee shows up, uh, the name Gamzee is actually taken from a uh, sort of, I guess, apparently popular role player on the official forums who role played as uh, the character who would become Gamzee, right? Terminally capricious when that was just a, a handle for the chat. Uh, there was a, someone who was role playing as Gamzee and that person uh, I think maybe their username was Gamzee or it was like a name that they came up with. Anyway, it gets incorporated into the actual narrative as Gamzee's real name. And the something awful mm. thread is livid about this. They're like, this is stupid. Why would you let like the uh, characters get named for fandom stuff? It should all just be like mythological cultural references. So uh, we're seeing, you know, kind of this uh, discursive work trying to uh, separate certain types of fans from other types of fans or different types of fan work from other types of fan work or fan engagement. Um, but sort of, in uh, a, oh. but, you know, just to, just to pause there for a second, this is why you would do it, right? Like th this is the exact reason why you would open it up mm -hmm. and what the benefit is on the creator side, right? Mm -hmm. The more you generate fan opportunities for fan investment or opportunities for people to talk about the work, um, you know, it's not just, uh, hey, wouldn't it be a fun idea to do this, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, I, you know, it, there's there's never. I'm I'm not saying this to imply on Hussey's part that there's some sort of like nefarious master plan as far as like making Homestuck wildly popular. <laughs> but if you're making things, it's very clear to know if you're in the internet like making stuff world over the past twenty years. It is very clear to understand or to, to figure out how to get people invested in what you're doing. Um, you know, quite to, just to be honest, we do a lot of things that are anti-investment on our shows mm -hmm. um, because so much of the, the methods for fan investment um, and, and to get people engaging with your object of choice are to rile them up mm -hmm. and to do things that are aggressive or um, displeasurable to them. And I'm sure that sometimes we do things that are displeasurable to, to listeners and viewers. But generally, we are not planning things <laughs> in such a way to do so. But if you take a little bit of a survey, you know, around the world, you'll notice that the one of the key ways of, of making a fandom uh, kind of royal, you know, and, and making it produce things is to create uh, interesting inflection points where people will have strong uh, binary opinions. Mm -hmm. You know, this is good or this is bad, not this is interesting. And uh, yeah, so like absolutely offering the opportunity for a popularity contest to happen in the middle of your of your webcomic 
like there's no universe in which that is not uh you know geared toward doing the, the exact thing that it did which is like get multiple different types of fan bases arguing with one another over what is good and what is bad and that means that the race to name the next one is so much higher mm-hmm. right and so much more um uh the stakes are higher so yeah a hundred percent i i totally understand why that happened mm-hmm. hey michael here and uh still with me is cameron uh, just, just interrupting things, interrupting the flow of things, uh, not too much, not to, uh, provide a recap of everything that's happened so far or anything, but to remind mm-hmm. you of the fundamentals of who we are at Range Touch. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter if you go to at Range Touch and learn all sorts of things that we're up to, see our posts and tweets, get updates. Um, you can also go to rangetouch.com where all of our shows, uh, including this one are, uh, sort of centralized. We also have Just King Things. That's about reading the books of Stephen King and talking about them in kind of a very similar way to what we're doing here, um, but also too much future doing the same thing, but playing through with the Fallout games, Mages and Murder Dads, mm-hmm. Cameron and Danny doing the same thing with Baldur's Gate games. Uh, we've got all sorts of stuff is what I want you to know. Um, but the other thing that is important to know is that this stuff exists because we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash range touch and support from listeners like you is what helps us keep going literally. Literally, the entirety of Homestuck Made This World would not exist if we did not have the Patreon backing to support us doing this kind of reading and uh, research. So uh, if you go to patreon.com slash range touch and give us just, you know, a dollar a month, that's that's fantastic. That helps. Uh, We appreciate it so much. Um, But we have various tiers that are available that have uh, access to various types of bonus content. So, for example, uh, at the ten dollar tier right now, we have Homestuck Made This World bonus odes that will be uh, extant by the time that you're listening to this. Uh, Our first one is going to be on Cameron and I discussing the film. Con Air, uh, and we had some really great uh, thoughts on that. It's a, it's a fun movie, and we uh, talk about not just the film itself, but we also talk about uh, how it relates to Homestuck more broadly, and we also take some uh, listener questions. So uh, on the bonus episodes, it's also probably where we'll be doing some uh, Q&A. Uh, all Q&A will take place only on the bonus episodes. All right, there we go. Uh, The other thing that you'll probably want to do then uh, is leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Wherever you listen to podcasts, do they let you leave reviews? Then please leave us a review. Tell us uh, how much you enjoy this experience and let other people know uh, and let your let your friends know. Right. We're we're hitting the uh, the fever pitch of Homestuck. Uh, It's the troll act, the thing that everyone knows that even Cameron knew before we started reading. So uh, if you have some in your life who's been like what the heck is up with homestuck uh i think that you could probably do worse things than send them our way to uh go on this journey with us yeah (laughs) all right well do it do it do it please please uh yeah well i guess that's that so uh back to the the normal discussion with all these kooky characters Woo! Uh, and just, you know, to, to state the obvious also, like, because I didn't really mention this in the summary or anything. <clears throat> uh, all of the trolls are based on Zodiac signs, which is a, a move of brilliance. And again, not to imply like nefarious, like Hussy had this plan. Here's how to go viral, because I think this is one of those things where it's like, um, you know, it's throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks. And it just so happens that I think like Hussy happens to get a really good run of spaghetti sticking. 
Uh, mm -hmm. because something like the Zodiac signs, each of the trolls corresponds to a Zodiac. So, uh, you know, Karkat is Cancer, uh, uh, Gamzee is Capricorn, Terezi is Libra, uh, that sort of thing. Um, this does a lot of interesting things. One is it builds in uh, a kind of expectation or interest if you know what your zodiac sign is personally. You're like, oh, what's my zodiac sign going to be, right? Which is which troll is mine, quote unquote. It establishes a sort of sense of relationship with the character um, before that character even shows up. Then uh, when that character shows up, if they turn out to be something you don't like, uh, the the fact that they have a Zodiac sign on their shirt, which uh, is just, you know, it's just presented as like a fact of life for these characters. There's not a lot of uh, talking about it. Um, it's implied, in fact, uh, pretty strongly to be a part of like the cast system. Um, when that happens and that character like turns out to be someone you don't like, it's no big deal because there's like another weirder character that you can like because these characters, even though they have these Zodiac signs, are not in any way really tethered to the Zodiac uh, as like sort of a personality uh, uh, map, right? You're not like, oh, I am uh, a Capricorn and therefore I relate to Gamzee because... Uh, I don't know, it puts you in this bizarre place where you're like, well, are Capricorns all juggalos? Is that what's happening there? Because no, they're not. Like, it's just this, like, totally arbitrary connection. So after that first layer of, like, Zodiac investment, you then get sort of the, the second layer of character investment where it's like, well, okay, so this is technically who my troll is. And by the way, we get, I think, uh, in this run, the first person to come in and start telling the thread to shut up because everyone is talking about what their Zodiac signs are. <laughs> Um, uh, there is a person who comes up in the something awful thread a couple of times. And this is so wild because it, I've spent literally the last decade, like just occasionally remembering this person, the person who comes in every time Zodiac chat starts extremely upset because they want everyone to know that, uh, astrology isn't real. Astrology isn't real Cameron. So stop talking about it. <laughs> Um, th this happens multiple times with this, this particular poster. And again, like I've spent oh. 10 years just thinking like, yeah, I remember that person who every time we talked about Zodiac signs and the something awful thread came in to tell us that astrology wasn't real in case we didn't know. Yeah. Astrology is not real, by the way. <laughs> wow. What a, what a, what a personality. Mm -hmm. That's like your one thing you care about. Oh, but anyway, right. Uh, as I was saying, aside from that personality, right, you can be like, well, you know, I don't really care about the Zodiac stuff, but damn, I'm really into like whatever's going on with Terezi or what have you. Right. Um, so there's like multiple on ramps to these characters and ways of, of kind of like uh, interfacing with them. Yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of different ways of. Um, you know, creating arbitrary modes of interaction and like places of contact. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you think about all of these, I, I think a, a useful way of thinking about uh, maybe high metabolism work. I, you know, that that's not a word that I've really uh, associated with like fandom content <laughs> in, the, in the past, but that might be a way of thinking about it, right? It, the churn, the amount of content that's coming through it, just like raw words and images. And then the way that people, you know, interact with it, it's hot, you know, it's high metabolism. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of calories getting burned here. And uh, so the more uh, opportunities for friction, 
right? The more places where these little orbs can bounce off of one another and then grab on, and then for you as a user to like have all of them, you know, hit you in a particular type of way, um, that that's going to always be beneficial. And that, you know, all of these characters are so they are all different from one another, mm-hmm. and they are all really unique. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the speech patterns are a big part of that. Oh know, yeah, of, of of making sure that you can hold them all all in. A different line, but they're you know this is something we talked about at the beginning of the show. But you know, Hussey is very good at voice mm-hmm. and very good at distinguishing characters from one another. And so, you know, that, that was really funny before. Like I couldn't remember Grim Auxiliatrix, but I could remember Green Text, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, because you know the way that they talk is very different from the way that these other characters are talking to each other. And yeah, I mean, maybe we should spend the last chunk of the episode or so just talking about the characters, unless there's like something, another like big, big idea we need to talk about. Uh, no, I, I think that was kind of uh, all that I wanted to cover in that point. So I really the other stuff that we need to talk about here is stuff that is directly related to the characters. So we might as well jump in on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we want to like work through all of them or do you just uh, want to maybe like pick and choose here? I didn't know if you had like Cameron's thought for each new character. No, no, I mean, we can kind of like bounce around however you want to do. But I will say, so uh, a thing that I said earlier, right, is that Alternia is this kind of like opposite world mm-hmm. or like all the things you think you knew. Um, this is something that you said and um, to me, you know, when we've been talking about Homestuck off mic, and I'm sure that you will bring this up sometime. So I don't want to do this, but, you know, I don't want to jump into it right now because uh, I'm sure that you're saving saving it. But something that really did hit me really hard in this is that. Uh, this where um, where the first four acts of Homestuck are Hussey really playing in a video game, uh, you know, kind of a, as a concept or or like a genre uh, mode, mm-hmm. and then a fantasy mode. This is science fiction, mm-hmm. like explicitly playing within a science fiction tool set, and that's very interesting. And I'm sure that will have interesting effects later on. Um, and so that's something I really noticed, uh, in this. Um, and the other thing is that these characters in the way that they interact with one another and the way that Alternia is this kind of like kind of opposite world in which everything is so much more aggressive and rude and mean, and they are the trolls and they all kind of are trolling one another, or at least a big chunk of them are trolling one another. Uh, it softens every other character in mm-hmm. the entire comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very easy for me to see now why people have such a strong connection with, for example, Dave, <laughs> someone who I find intolerable. But when you compare Dave to all these people, <laughs> for the most part, most of these people, you go, oh, yeah, he's just a normal guy. <laughs> There's nothing. <laughs> and also, that's Dave's most egregious pieces are so far in the, like, uh, you know, uh, word count past that it's really easy to lose focus on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the most recent versions of him, you know, most recent to the trolls being introduced, he's like much more reasonable. There's future Dave hanging out and Dave Sprite. And he's like kind of a cool guy rather than a, like an annoying irony bro guy. And uh, again, in comparison to these these characters, he is like way closer to the norm. Like the Overton <laughs> window has moved in this comic about like what is normal interaction in the world and what is like acceptable interaction in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I mean, right? This this uh, we had someone mind control someone off a cliff and paralyze them mm-hmm. in this uh, you know thing. Uh, that that's just like a different universe of what's what's been happening here, and especially of of uh, you know like 
what we think is good and bad and good interaction with one another and bad interaction with one another. So those are things that really kind of stuck out to me, you know, just, just big, broad characterization stuff that's going on here. Also, just one other thing, because I know people like hearing this. I actually think that for this um, epicording, whatever we're calling mm-hmm. it, <laughs> yeah. uh, for this, uh, some of the worst visual, because, um, you know, I praise Hussey quite often for their kind of like visual imaginary. I think mm-hmm. they're a pretty good editor. I think they're a pretty good uh, uh, sequential image creator. Really bad ones here, actually. I And to the point where they stuck out to okay. me. Um, I, I've got one that actually... Uh, it, 2028 is probably one of the worst ones in the entire comic so far. I'm gonna pull this and I think up. it's interesting. And I don't know what to do with it. So it's like oh, we're, yeah. we're seeing Carcat looking down into a hole. And then we cut to looking up out of a hole. Right, so like it's kind of like a match on action a little bit, but then the camera pans down. It's just a clunker, yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> "What is going on here?" Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, normally I like to point out things I really enjoy and not point out things I really uh, don't like as far as the images are concerned. But that one really stuck out to me. Like whatever you were going for there did not work. Mm-hmm. It's it's very fun. I would not have thought to bring this up, but I also had like in, I remember one reading this originally and having a similar reaction to the panel and two remembering my reaction to it when I reread it for this, just being yeah, like, this, something... this is not an elegant, uh, uh, formal move here. No, no, it's a real clunker, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Let's, let's talk about the individual characters, I guess. Where do you want to go? So, I mean, we've already, mentioned it right but we have uh, a character who gets mind controlled and and forced to jump off a cliff and then is paralyzed uh this is tavros um adios Mm. toreador whom we've met before he he tried to troll dave and got counter trolled so bad that he had to block dave so we already kind of know uh what tavros is is like that's that's our introduction to his character right we move into this thinking like okay of all the trolls we already know he's the one who uh has the hardest time of it. Mm-hmm. The discovery that he is uh, using a wheelchair is a huge uh, like moment in the reader response because uh, this is a thing that readers chose. Uh, there was a fan theory uh, back when we first saw uh, Tavros, back when we didn't know his name was Tavros, uh, there was a fan theory that sort of bubbled up around uh, Act Four that he was in a wheelchair because uh, of two main pieces of evidence. One of all the trolls that we glimpsed in Act Four, uh, he was the only one who we did not see from the waist down. Uh, so there was like a blank spot there, right? And there was like some sort of like push or momentum from the fan community to kind of just, you know, fill out that blank spot and be like, what if in this place that we couldn't see, this is what the case was. The second uh, piece of evidence that got marshaled for this fan theory uh, was when Tavros uh, at near the end of Act 4 talks to Jade about how uh, the trolls version of Prospect apparently got destroyed and all their dream selves died, all the trolls dream selves died. Um, he talks about how much like that was his favorite part of the game, right? He didn't like all of the puzzles and the combat and stuff like what he liked was being able to, uh, go to sleep and be his dream self on prospect and fly around. So there is a fandom reading then that takes his like wistful remembrance of being able to move and like marshals that as like, okay, here's if, if 
Tavros isn't, well, if Adios Torador, if, if AT is in a wheelchair, right, this is more evidence to that fact. This is a thing that people in the Something Awful thread know about. Like, all of the little fan theories are also, like, filtering in from the official forums. And so when it turns out that Tavros is using a wheelchair, people are like, oh, wow, holy crap. Um, like, that's, you know, a real thing that happened. Uh, and uh, for what it's worth, Hussey also points out in the book commentary, like, specifically, like, this is a thing that fa- uh, the, the word used is the, a thing that fans willed into existence in the story. <sighs> You did it to yourself. Yep. You did this to Tavros fans. Yep. That thing's that feels like a uh, abdication of responsibility on the part of the creator. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's that seems to be the story of Homestuck in some ways. So mm-hmm. not shocked on that one. Mm-hmm. But uh, come on, mm-hmm. it's not. That's not how things work. So I mean, we're going to talk more about that um, in in the next part episode, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so that that's like the outline of everything there. And then the other thing you need to know about Tavros is that he is, and I hate to do this, but it's um, one of those situations where it's useful. Um, I'm going to go to TV tropes on this. Oh, no! Tavros is a wooby. Ah! All right, I'm over it. You can do it. He's a wooby. What the fuck is that? Uh, the Wooby, uh, per TV tropes is like the character who basically exists, like the, the more contemporary version of this, uh, might be something Mm -hmm. like my little meow meow. What is that? (laughs) Uh, it's sort of, uh, 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 a character who is just like, oh, they're so soft and they're so tiny and I just, I just want to pick them up and I want to hold them and I love them. They're so cute. Mm -hmm. Like a goober, a goober, right? He's like a goober, but also like a pathetic goober, right? He is a character who deserves your pity or like your, your sort of like deep sympathy. Mm. Um, that is, uh, kind of the, the way that Tavros is sort of presented and treated, uh, because he's, he is so out of his depth constantly, (laughs) like of all of the trolls, like he is the least aggressive, uh, like is is really bad at doing troll things uh does not want to fight or argue would rather just get along with people um and is constantly given hell for it everyone is constantly mocking him like the when he uh texts carcat after um ag gets hit mind controls him into jumping off a cliff uh he he like texts carcat he's like so ag just like maybe jump off a cliff and paralyze myself um, and Carcat's response is, uh, quit playing games for girls, asshole. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, like he is a character who is pathetic. And then like the narrative is arranged around him in such a way to just like beat the crap out of him. And a lot of Hussey's commentary in the book on this point is, is sort of backing up the fact that, uh, like, just just echoing the point that, like, Tavros is is a, a huge loser. Like, that's that is sort of the the angle that is being taken in forum discussions. This is interesting um, because it is Ag who makes this happen. Uh, this this uh, mysterious girl with an eye patch and robot arm uh, and fangs. This is the other thing. She's got fangs. Uh, we, we don't know much about her, but the fact that she's done this tells us that maybe maybe there's something pretty bad about her. Um, but then it's kind of like 
But in some ways, right, wasn't isn't Tavros just like such a wimp that you can't help but uh, make him jump off a cliff? I guess I, I'm sure like in this fictional universe you created. Yeah, I guess you could do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. If he also could just magically fly, that would also make sense. Because, mm-hmm. again, it's made up mm-hmm. <laughs> and made up moment by moment. <laughs> So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's not, it it is so, I mean, look, I know that we're going to talk about this, but, uh, you know, it's very much like, um, you know, a theory of sub-creation, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, uh, you create this little magic universe and you're a divine watchmaker and you just set everything going and it's ticking forward. That's not how thing, that's not really how fiction works. That's Mm -hmm. like a fiction you tell yourself to not have to deal with the fact that you're writing fiction. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to have so much to say about this. I know, I know, I I know you're going to have, I I can't, I'm jumping the gun a little bit. I I, It's just so apparent to me here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, we'll talk about it next bone, uh, next recording. So that's what's happening with Tavros. Um, uh, Just the, the, the way that he's being treated is, is really kind of interesting and questionable. Mm -hmm. Right. In a lot of respects. Uh, The other thing that then falls out from what happens to Tavros is uh, what uh, what do we do with this character of A.G.? And like a a lot of people are just like, she's awful. She's the worst character. Right. She is the villain. Uh, In fact, pulling on something that has already happened in the comic, you'll remember that uh, Jack Noir who really hates the Black Queen, uh, tends to scribble on like some parking tickets. If you have not read uh, the comic, I'm, I'm describing a thing that you kind of see in his office. Mm-hmm. On all of his little citation tickets, he likes to doodle like these uh, really crappy drawings of the Black Queen looking ridiculous. And then he like writes above them, blah, blah, huge bitch. The fans pick this up and start applying that to AG. Like people are making gigantic flashing uh, animated GIFs, right? About like what a quote unquote huge bitch this character is, right? Irredeemable evil. And in fact, uh, Cameron, when when you got to this part uh, and you like, you know, DM'd me on Discord, you were like, what the heck? Uh, and like you, you asked to see the thread uh, from when this re- reveal happened, right? You wanted me to link you to it. Um, yep. What were your thoughts uh, people were doing that. Yep. <laughs> That's, that. It wasn't I didn't believe you. I just wanted to know. And yeah, lo and behold, people were definitely doing that. So and uh, yeah. and you know what? Like on one hand, it makes uh, not on one hand. It makes sense. Right. This is a villainous character. We've been given a sad sack that we have to imp- empathize with because he is it's like watching a puppy get kicked. Right. Uh, this is literally just save the cat shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like screenwriting 101, you give a, a little pathetic thing and then you you uh, introduce a character by how they interact with it. Saving the cat is that the hero comes in and does a good thing for a helpless creature. Well, lo and behold, we are introduced to a villain by uh, the opposite, mm-hmm. by them, uh, you know, kicking, um, kicking him off a cliff. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's like villain shit, but it's the... Uh, um, the outrage is something that I find so interesting mm-hmm. um, because it's one thing to be like, dang, like mm-hmm. this character's bad. And another to be like, I've created a moral universe mm-hmm. of like real interaction mm-hmm. and morally this character is 
irredeemable <laughs> mm-hmm. pages and pages of this kind of reaction yeah it's like i don't i don't know this is, uh this seems not real to me <laughs> yeah let's back up to stanfill here <clears throat> uh broad tendencies or patterns in industries uh interactions with fans function as foucault describes the workings of this form of power and this is a quote from foucault not to modify any given phenomenon as such or to modify a given individual insofar as he is an individual but essentially to intervene at the level at which these general phenomena are determined to intervene at the level of their generality, unquote Foucault. So as Stanville kind of summarizes, in this case, fans are acted on as a population through producing, disseminating, and reinforcing a norm of media use. So we're seeing this kind of cycle, right, where fans are having kind of reactions to the thing that they're reading. They go back into the thing that they're reading, pick up the kind of blah, blah, huge bitch thing, uh, and then are repurposing that as part of their response, right? We see this norm get constructed uh, that is kind of this, like, as you say, it's not real. Like, sure, this is an awful thing that this character does, but in watching it happen, like, you know, post after post after post, it's like, wow, this sure is a lot of people just kind of engaging in what feels like sort of a sanctimonious or justified like a uh, uh, misogyny against a fictional character. Yeah. And, and you know, a thing that I, that I want to say here, too, about I, like I, I agree with all of this uh, Stanfield work that you're saying uh, or that you're quoting from here, because I think it's just generally the correct parts of Foucault. But the uh, the simplification maybe I want to make on this is that uh, a kind of a critical claim of Foucault and some, you know, what we might call anti-humanist um, thinkers of the time is that your interactions and your reactions and the way that you engage with media culture the social around you you know insert your 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 favorite term here uh those are structured for you Mm -hmm. you have no originary kind of thing it is only the accumulated set of um predictable modes of interaction that you have available you have kind of a toolkit Mm -hmm. of the ways that you know how to interact and that is created by mimetic behavior you know you, you've seen what other people do and doing that kind of thing and so uh any kind of fan culture any kind of um uh, uh feeling that you have about a piece of media is ultimately in conversation with uh the way that you think you are supposed to be interacting um you know and that happens in a million different ways but but i think that's critical to kind of like kind of simplify down here right that mm-hmm. that ultimately the the uh kind of deck of cards of kinds of interactions that you have with homestuck for example as a live reader is partially built out of you know some of those that deck of cards of interaction some of those come from the ways you've interacted with media before some of it comes from the way you were raised your parents some of it comes with other media that are similar to you right so like someone who is a lost um viewer might be interacting with this differently than someone who is uh, just a video game like a jrpg player right Mm -hmm. that accounts for those different things but some of it comes from the thing itself. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, the more you engage with the thing, the more your kind of deck of possible interactions uh, gets filled in with additional ways uh, th- from the thing itself. So, you know, a way that you've put this before is that Homestuck kind of teaches you how to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the bigger, broader thing, right, that Stanfell is pointing out and that Foucault kind of gives us ways of talking about is that everything teaches you how to read it. More importantly, 
everything disciplines you into a way of reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, this is not really unique to Foucault. This is in Kant as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, going all the way back. But it's an important kind of thing to think of here because uh, I think one way of thinking about Homestuck and one way it gets talked about and we've even talked about on the show is that that Homestuck is fairly insular. Mm-hmm. But that insularity of is emergent from the way the thing is made Mm -hmm. and the way the formal properties of the thing it isn't so increasingly asking you to look inward to it for ways of understanding it right it's exactly what you were saying earlier about this just assumes you understand intimately all the rules of spurb Mm -hmm. which is wild because this is i mean it's not happening yet obviously but uh we've mentioned it on the show already at a point in the future one of the things that happens in the fandom is you start trying to tell your friends like hey you should read homestuck uh start reading at act five because that's when the trolls show up and that's where it's most fun (laughs) but like if you start reading at act five like what the hell are you going to make of any of this yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I think that's bad advice. Yeah. <laughs> I just, as someone who is, you know, here, here's the thing. Maybe I'm going to get into Act Six and I'm going to believe that. You know, I'm, I'm open to anything in the future, but I, I, I don't think that's necessarily it. <laughs> um, you want to run through these other characters really quick? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, what do you think about Carcat? I like Carcat. Carcat good. Carcat good. I agree. Carcat's a little gremlin, and he he's got a lot of pent up aggression, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and he loves to tell people to shove things into their orifices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I mean he's he's Troll John, right? He is like yes. the most medium of the trolls. He's right there in the middle. Uh, he's he's just irate enough to be a troll, but not irate enough to be like super weird. <laughs> Or no, no, he's not. He's not particularly mean either. He's just, yeah. you know, he he wants to play the game and he wants to do the thing. And he's also a little bit of a contrarian mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that if you tell him not to do a thing, he wants to do it. Mm-hmm. Much like John. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he's like he's endlessly exasperated with things, which I think mm-hmm. makes him feel uh, very relatable, especially if you're someone who's reading this comic. Uh, oh. You mentioned Gamzee briefly when when you, you mm-hmm. said that he you DM'd me and you were like, I can't remember how you put it. You said he was like one of the most uh, intriguingly drawn characters thus far or something. Yeah, <laughs> you had just such got a lot going. <laughs> you had such a response to the revelation of the Juggalo troll. Uh, hold on, let me let me look it up. <laughs> Oh, how do I, how do I, did I not use the word juggalo? What? Hold on. You, right, you did right, say right. Gamzee is what you said. Oh yeah. I said Gamzee. Okay. No, I didn't. <laughs> you said, uh, Gamzee is so incredibly stupid, but also one of the best <laughs> conceived characters in this entire thing so far. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't know why it, but the searchy won't work for me, but, uh, yeah, look, I, he is just so strongly outlined, right? <laughs> he, he is a stoner. Juggalo. <laughs> End of story. Mm-hmm. There's, he's not more complicated than that. He doesn't really talk about anything other than that. The uh, the exposition is dedicated to explaining to us that uh, in a far future, that there's a, a cult on Alternia. Alteria? Alternia. Alternia. Uh, that is dedicated to believing that one day, basically, that Juggalos will exist. Mm-hmm. Which really does a lot. It's like not a different universe, maybe. It's just in the far past, but not that far past. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Who cares? 
but someone cares, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, but I, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, like Gamsey's cult uh, is yeah the the dedicated to worshiping the idea of this future paradise planet where there will be a, a pair of uh, mirthful messiahs. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Uh, and he's just—I don't know—he's just a little gross guy. Yeah. He he's, literally he's is like, drinking Fago, like has bottles of just Fago sitting around. Yeah. <laughs> he's got like big goofy hair. Mm-hmm. He rides a unicycle for some reason. Yeah. Because he's a clown. They call it because it's troll. Like, this is, this is uh, one of the things I love about stupid troll shit is the fact that it's not called a unicycle; it's called a one-wheel device. Yeah. Yes. Of course. And, and then we get sort of the the consequence of that later when uh, Tavros is introduced because his wheelchair is in fact called a two wheel device. Yeah. Right. Which is the like it's opposite world. Yeah. Right? It's it literally is a child's game mm-hmm. that the way that Alternia is introduced to us is a children's game. Hey, you thought you knew one thing. It's the other thing. <laughs> which is like I'm I'm not minimizing in any way, but like. The because it works, it's really, really kind of beautiful how it works. But you have to recognize that the reason that this is so engaging, just on a basic kind of formal way, is that it is using young adult and children's literature and then warping it into a different shape. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to how lots of popular YouTubers basically talk to us as if they are talking to us in children's programming, mm-hmm. like. Watch a popular YouTuber and go back and watch Mr. Rogers and look at the way they do direct address and how they talk about we and us and you and the way that they very patiently walk through things that you probably already know quite a bit about. You, it, this is not to say that, that to minimize or to say that anything of these things are bad, but to say that going back to the standfill, we have modes of media interaction in this visual culture that we live in that start very young. And if you push on those things and hold on to them, you can get people engaged in something very easily. Mm-hmm. It's just how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terezi, any thoughts on Terezi? I think I already talked about Terezi quite a bit uh, when, when she showed up before. I think she's fun. Yeah. I think she's a good character. I, I like all of her drawings. She does. I don't really like this whole like, uh, whatever justice prosecution thing she does Mm -hmm. whatever yeah who cares i mean a a good number of these characters have like jobs that they want to have when they grow up right uh carcat wants to be um a a legislacerator i think is what it's called which is just like a type of soldier Mm -hmm. um no he's when he wants to be a thresh executioner that's it Um, yeah it's terezi who wants to be the the legislacerator uh yeah, and this, like, uh, Two-Face thing, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. Yeah, this is also the point where people are like, oh my god, she's both Daredevil and Two-Face. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that is true. Right. Um, people start, yeah. like, mapping out which trolls are which members of the X-Men as well, because, of course, oh. this next guy, Solix, uh, is kind of Cyclops. Uh, I don't care for Solix at all. Yeah. Solix is like such a miserable person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not for me. Uh, although I do like his horns. I think they look cool because he's yeah. Gemini, right? Yes. He's the Gemini. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think he looks cool. I like, I like his, uh, uh, two forms of vision thing. Mm-hmm. I like his programming language that has started two worlds. Yes. Uh, there's like a couple programming jokes in here that are pretty good. I think those are neat. Not jokes, but like, you know, they're they're part of the storytelling. Um, you know, he has found the code for Suburb. Is that, wait, maybe that's in the next 
recording we're supposed to talk about that i already said it in the summary so oh that's right that's right, right. that's right uh, I, but I, yeah, yeah so he's found the game somewhere else in the world uh or universe yeah aradia found it and uh he's like helped he's like helped compile it that's uh, right that's and of right. course the other thing that he's found is that strange piece of code with the uh wildly oscillating billiard balls in it yeah because he pulled that from um Jack Noir's world, right? The server that Jack Noir is running on. Yeah, so it was pulled. So this is another interesting thing that happens here is uh, somehow the uh, kids on Alternia are capable of accessing uh, stuff in the game session, like game servers that are running in this session. And because the game sessions like the medium is is. untethered from all time uh there are just sort of like things floating out there and sullux somehow got this weird piece of code from out there somewhere yep i'm sure that this will be over explained at some point oh <laughs> like that, that are, are you gonna is that not true <laughs> uh this is uh, i'm uh, no it doesn't get explained very much i will say or rather wow, it's it's astonishing a th- <laughs> It is a thing that I think that um, if you tried to come up with a lot of rational explanations for it, it starts to fall apart a little bit. So it requires on it, it relies on a kind of um, very thin connective logic that we're eventually going to get to. But even that connective logic is like, don't press on this too much because then the whole thing kind of goes to pieces. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I it's uh, I think Act Four has really kind of uh, you know speaking of ways of being trained to interact with an object. Uh, is is really made me disinvest from like theorizing anything mm-hmm. because it will be over explained to me. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting, but I, you know, I'm curious to see what the uh, what the comic has to say about that. But yeah, Solix is not not my favorite character. Mm-hmm. I only bring up the billiard balls thing because, of course, that's that's the felt. It's the felt, Cameron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, it's the felt. It's it's Lord. Uh, Eng- what's lord english yeah what is he? yeah lord english uh, the okay. demon who comes in at the end of the universe and then sets up all of his uh conditions for existence mm-hmm. you gotta put a little english on it mm-hmm. on all of reality right. to bend it toward <laughs> uh whatever goal you want uh so after solex we've already talked about tavros uh there's Aradia, um who mm-hmm. uh i mentioned in my summary turns out to be a ghost uh, that is a thing that is uh, presented as a plot twist to the reader, uh, which and this is, uh, I think, historically, one of the points where uh, as a reader, I'm like, oh, OK, this is just like bullshit. <laughs> this is made up. Yeah, right. <laughs> this like is fake. Like this, this is this wasn't real the whole time. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But what I mean is like I, thought uh, I was watching a documentary about the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I mean is like sort of, uh, you know, to what degree are sort of the rules that have been established for this story mm-hmm. going to kind of like hold up or like, you know, what what is going to be sort of beyond the possibility space for theorizing? Uh, because unlike you, right, you're you're reading uh, archivally and you know that I am going to be here to explain everything to you anyway. So why would you theorize? Um but as I'm reading, I am sort of curious as to, like, what is the ultimate form of this weird thing that I am interacting mm-hmm. with? Right. Is is Hussey going to kind of like set some really solid rules and then sort of follow those? And it's when Aradia is revealed to have been a ghost the entire time we've been looking at her that I'm like, oh, yeah. OK, so there's just going to be like. Like stuff is going to happen because it's going to be a sort of little mind screw to the audience. And for whatever reason, it's going to be convenient for Hussey for something that they're doing otherwise in the story. So in this case, Aradia is like 
um, completely neutral or even just like lowered affect. Like she has very few responses to anything that are not just like, okay, sure, whatever. Um, because she is dead and for whatever reason can, uh, hear all of like the, she can hear like the screaming voices of the dead, right? Imagine like, uh, Obi-Wan, the moment he, uh, senses Alderaan being blown up, uh, the million voices being silenced, uh, Aradia just hears that constantly and, they are also always telling her kind of like what is going to happen. So we're getting more like weird time bullshit where the voices of the dead are telling Aradia exactly how the world is ending. And then she is like falling into line with that narrative, right? Taking the steps that are necessary for like the apocalypse to happen on Alternia through the, uh, you know, bringing, bringing to the fore this game, this apocalypse engine that is scrub yeah i mean i think my serially some things are still happening um or you know archivally i guess reading archivally so some of those things are still happening you know i i guess i think even reading at the time i think the revelations at the end of act four would have really made me disinvested from like thinking too much about this mm-hmm. i think i probably if i if i had been reading at the time i would have kept doing it but the i i i, I just I will, i'll never get over it when that rabbit comes out of that box mm-hmm that is that is whatever you felt about Aradia, right? Like, <laughs> who? Okay, fine, right? Like, I cannot believe that this is the way that this like wraps together. Is this like really arbitrary bullshit? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I had a similar feeling where I was like, oh, I guess she's dead the whole time. Uh, this is something that's really interesting too. Is that something that you noted earlier that all of act five up through where I've read, um, you know, I haven't finished act five yet, but, uh, all of act five is bound up in a, uh, in the deflationary move mm-hmm. that is, you know, earlier in the comic that we've talked about a few times, which is almost every single major plot point that happens here is immediately met by the narrator being like, Hey, didn't you know that? Huh? Well, that's surprising, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, there is a deep kind of narratorial irony now, or like a narratorial distance that's going on here um, that I think also kind of accounts for the like skip everything started act five thing, which is like, hey, all of this really doesn't matter and whatever matters will be explained to you. Like mm-hmm. just you're along for the ride. Um, it really feels like, because plot developments in the early part of the comic felt really important. Like when we learned new parts of how the game worked, even if they're most laborious or like uninteresting, learning how they worked was very important. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing if Rose gets you know into the medium or whatever, that's important. That's interesting. Here, all of that is introduced and it feels important for a second and then immediately is deflated mm-hmm. every single time. Mm-hmm. And it really is just another moment. You know, I, the Aradia thing is a good example of the focus of this thing is shifting and it's shifting onto characters and how they run into each other. And it is less interested in plot. I mean, plot is the thing that makes them run into each other, but the the it is no longer plot driven. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it is character driven. Um, and it is character interaction driven. And I think that that explains some of the like explosion that you were talking about of fan interaction, which is that, Hey, we are actively being told by the narrator that plot specific events 
are really like not the thing that mm-hmm. are interesting here. We are being told that they're boring and mm-hmm. that they're not interesting, that you could have figured it out on your own. And we are being, and then the novelty, because, because character dialogue is not commented on. It is being given to us directly, quote unquote, right in the chat logs. And so there's no opportunity for a deflationary move to happen afterward. Other than those kind of moments where it's, uh, you know, where we get the other side of a conversation and the narrator's like, hey, you already heard about this. You heard it from the other side. Go back and read that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, even the Aradia example is very good in the sense that it it is act five so far for me in a nutshell, which is plot doesn't matter where the characters go matter. It's interesting that she is dead from like a big, broad perspective. But really, that just gives you more flavor for understanding why she interacts the way she does hearing the voices of the dead, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, there's um, something uh, really interesting that I think Hussey Hussey probably figured this out before, uh, but is making really strong use of here, which is that the narratorial voice and the character voices, uh, because of the formal properties of this comic, right, because of the way that you read this thing on a website, because of the ways that the text is colored, um, because of the ways that uh, character dialogue gets individuated from narratorial text through uh, the colors and like the typing quirks and things like that, uh, you can get a really strong feeling, right? A kind of aesthetic feeling uh, that the narratorial voice and the character voices exist on different ontological planes. Whereas in a novel, a sort of traditionally written novel, uh, you have a narrator's voice kind of running into dialogue, which is quoted or, you know, not quoted if you're reading Cormac McCarthy or something. Um, But nevertheless, right, uh, uh, in a novel, a character's dialogue is kind of the the same thing, right, in in terms of like the object that you're looking at as the narrator's uh, description of events. Whereas here, uh, you know, the these are char- like they are chat logs that the characters are talking through and they uh, are made to feel like chat logs. Right. It is like reading mm-hmm. a chat log transcript, especially in terms of like how long they can be and how much characters talk about things that are not really directly to the point of what's going on. Right. Characters go on detours and insult each other and like uh, talk about other things. Right. So this may yeah. be a. Uh, Puts us in a position to consider, uh, if only briefly, uh, Nepeta. Uh, both, both a, f- a furry uh, question or a cat girl? Yeah, which maybe is not the same thing. Well, she's wearing it. She's wearing a cat hat, right? Is mm-hmm. the thing, right? Like, yeah, he- heavy overlap, but I don't want to say they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, and also a shipper. Mm-hmm. Uh, a shipper. We'll talk more about that next time. But the really big thing is that she's a a, a role player. Her her yeah. chat, uh, yes. her 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 typing gimmick is that every conversation with her is like she's describing her own actions as if she's like having a chat role play session with everyone. Um, which I really love. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's it's endearing, uh, <laughs> like as a character, right? Um, and you get the sense, like, what's interesting is she's a troll, right? So, like, within the the mindset of uh, like the you know the the hussy author function here, right? Mm-hmm. This is just as much trolling as like the fascism that Equius gets up to about like blood quantum and oh, shit like no. that, right? Oh like, no, you've you've spoiled the beautiful reveal of Equius and his fascism. I well, it's going to come up. Okay. Uh, sorry. N- next two episodes or, you know, in two weeks, we'll talk about it even more. But Nepeta's relationship to Equius is like, 
Um, it is uh, disturbingly drawn, mm-hmm. uh, I will say, and, and has some some very weird uh, effects. But that gets previewed a little bit here within the thing. Mm-hmm. Guess what? There's a character named Equius. Yeah, it's Centaur's testicle. Uh, learn learn the last name in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's Centaur's <laughs> testicle, the guy who uh, builds robots and really likes violent furry porn. Um, yeah. And also is like fetishistically de- dedicated to uh, the caste system of this planet. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, people uh, bring up the weirdness of his interactions with Nepeta because the discussion that happens is Nepeta has been invited to play the game. Um, and she's going to play with one of the teams and uh, she's talking with um, CT about it. Oh, I'm just going to call him Equius. Fine. Mm-hmm. She's talking with Equius. Just Equi- call him Equius. It's yeah. okay. We're going to talk, she's talking with Equius about it. And he's like, um, you know, uh, that would be debasing yourself, right? You're, you're, those are the low bloods. Uh, I would not have you do this. You cannot do this. He's very controlling toward her. Um, in, in very patronizing, uh, in a way that, uh, people are already feeling weird about. And like, I can't remember, like we get a glimpse of him in all of his furry porn, right? So we know he's got something going on. We know to have bad vibes around him. Um, but at this point it's interesting, like how people just kind of see that conversation and they're like, man, that's weird. And then they just sort of keep going. Right. There, there's not really a, a lot of focus on the weirdness of that conversation and a lot of its implications, which actually end up becoming much more obvious later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here, here's the thing. Uh, just in a general thing, if you're having to ask someone on the Internet permission to do something and you were not in a uh, consenting relationship that is based on things like permission, that's not good. Mm-hmm. I'm just going gener- to in a general sense, I think that's probably bad. Mm hmm but we'll learn more about it next episode oh we will so uh yeah i mean those are those are all the the named characters and we can talk about the other characters uh the other trolls who are going to show up uh later on um one of the things that i want to point out about uh the book commentary here uh just so Mm -hmm. because it's previewing something that i'm going to talk more extensively about in the next part episode as well um in this book uh, and also, I guess I'll, I'll say this because I think a lot of people haven't figured it out. Um, these episodes, at least for uh, the first half of the comic, are structured with the print books. That's like a big secret. Mm. I've 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 had people uh, I've seen people like sort of not, I think, clock that. Uh, but I'm just taking the print books and I'm dividing them into three or four parts. And that's how we're reading them. Uh, this means that I can read the commentary uh, as w- along with these different sections. In book four, which is when act five starts, uh, the hussy commentary uh, becomes much longer and starts talking about all of these troll characters uh, as if and this is, you know, of a piece of what I've said already about the commentary as if you already know them. uh, Hussey in the commentary will constantly sort of describe what they're doing. Like, you know, here's Gamzee. Here's what we think about Gamzee. Here's what did you notice that like uh, Gamzee has this, this and this going on? Well, we might from this uh, sort of assume that this is something like Gamzee's cast lives like this, right? Sort of uh, spinning the wheels on all of the world building and stuff that like fans are normally doing um, and describing what they're doing. 
that is descri- Hussey describing what they're doing as like meta, which is a was contemporary. I don't know, uh, contemporary a couple of years ago. I don't know if it's still that relevant uh, of a way of people in fandom talking about like uh, theory crafting on characters. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's this way in which Hussey's commentary is echoing a reader response in a way that's really interesting and, and strange. Uh, but also throughout all this, um, constantly diverting to talk about how, uh, you know, Tavros is uh, worthless, right? Um, sort of reinforcing that while also saying that Vris- er, shit, shit, shit. Uh, saying that AG is, uh, like really cool, right? Taking AG's side and AG, when she, uh, got Tavros to jump off the cliff, she, uh, was only doing that because she liked him because that's like what trolling, like in troll culture, that's how things work, right? Um, all of these really weird things. There's also a bit where Carcat, uh, like insults Nepeta by calling her autistic, um, and like Hussey's mm-hmm. response in the uh, commentary is something like, well, you know, it's you could say that Carcat is being ableist, but actually, what if Nepeta like what if Nepeta is actually on the autism spectrum and just bullshit, right? Like, I don't know what to do with this other than say that, like, this is this is like uh, it, it's a what we touched on earlier, this way of uh, talking about these characters as if they are not like people that are like that they are not fictional beings that were written with specific kind of like uh, things going on and that there is someone who is responsible for them. Yes, they're they're. uh, Hussey wants to have it both ways, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Right. So on one hand, we know that characters or fictional worlds or whatever are not reducible to the words that are on the page. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's just a fact when, you know, when, when you make a Gandalf, you know, you're, you're sitting down down there, J.R.R. sitting down there and he's inventing a Gandalf. Uh, whatever he writes, right. Creates necessary gaps, inferences, conceptualizations, Whatever. So, you know, when we read Gandalf and Gandalf's adventures and all the things he does in, in all the Gandalf books, uh, we in- inherently are filling in some of the gaps there. Right. Mm-hmm. So we are making assumptions about feeling or whatever. And sometimes that's directly communicated to us. And, you know, we're, we're getting, um, you know, strong expository information. It's like Gandalf felt sad. Gandalf felt good. <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, but then there are gaps where we're just making inferences because that's how fiction works, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you create fictional situations and they, they are enlivened in the brain of the uh, reader mm-hmm. uh, of the thing. Um, so, right, I, absolutely. There's like things that we just assert or assume about fictional characters that we have no way to ground in the text. Um, on the, On the other hand... Right. So like there's that, that there's the generation and then there is the writing things explicitly down to make them true. And it seems like Hussey wants to bounce back and forth regularly between those two things. Right. Mm -hmm. And and hold them both as like this is just how it is, as opposed to things that you can manipulate and things you can do. So, for example, in the uh, example that you just gave, Alternia is a radically different holy, you know, it's opposite world, Mm -hmm. all these different things that are in it. But there's a character who could be on the autism spectrum. Like autism exists, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Right. This is this is a purposeful uh, uh, introduction mm-hmm. of of a real world thing into it. 
and and it is a way of enlivening a fictional universe with pieces of our own right this another way of saying this is uh you know in science fiction studies is this is a form of uh uh extrapolation mm-hmm. that's going on here right it given xyz qualities that we are familiar with in our world um and then pushing them forward what what happens um so yeah i just don't think i like you 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 can't you can't take key responsibility for the things that you think are really good and just be like, hey, it just happens, and what can you do about it for the things that you don't want to take responsibility for, mm-hmm. right? Because those gaps are gaps that you produced as a creator. Mm-hmm. Like, when when someone steps in to speculate about a character, it is because you have given them the opportunity to speculate there, which is like part of all fiction. Mm-hmm. Again, Gandalf, we, we don't know his thoughts every single moment. But we do know Gandalf's thoughts, you know, whenever he's charging across the plains, shooting ring wraiths down, right? That that the the um, interaction there and the way that that he's engaging in that scenario is authored in a very specific way. Uh, I don't think that you know when Gandalf is sitting quietly and then uh, you know a fan fiction writer comes in and is like, and Gandalf was thinking about farming sheep and thought about his <laughs> six hundred year stint farming sheep. You can't be like. Oh, uh, geez, I guess Gandalf was farming sheep that whole time. I, you know, I don't know. Well, actually, I have uh, here a letter from J.R.R. Tolkien himself uh-huh. where he says, oh, geez, I guess Gandalf was thinking about farming sheep that whole time. Yeah, Gandalf's a real person. And I guess he was doing that, right? Mm-hmm. You just have to acknowledge, yeah, sometimes there are uh, fan interventions that happen that are happening in the necessary gaps of fiction. And uh, I, I think that if you are a creator who is in conversation with your public as much as um, as Hussey is, I, I think maybe the two strategies there are either step in and start confirming a lot of stuff or just shut up about it mm-hmm. and let the thing do the thing. I think this like intermediate position of uh, of continuing to stoke the fire in that way is probably ends up with bad results. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I literally don't know, but but yeah, we'll see. So I think we're going to have a lot more to say about that uh, as we continue on with Act 5, as uh, certain other characters make their presences known and we get to understand what they do in this story and what various people think about them. Uh, that's where I'll leave it off for now. Um, we will be then reading uh, for Episode 4, Part 2, up until page uh 2,406. And uh, I don't know, what's what's the sign off, Cameron? What are, what are the words of wisdom you want to leave the listeners with? Oh, my God. <laughs> he just left the call. <laughs> <laughs>